0: Welcome to the Edge Dwellers Cafe, an interview-based podcast featuring conversations at the convergence of politics, environment, and mental health in a world on edge. My name is Ben Habib, and I'm an international relations scholar, an environmentalist, permaculture practitioner, and neurodivergent coffee drinker. Join me in my quest to explore the edges that define us, divide us, and shape how we interact with each other as we grapple with the extraordinary changes taking place across our world. Order a hot beverage and get comfortable. This is the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Ahoy there, Edge Dwellers. The COVID pandemic has pressed pause on international travel. And with COVID lockdowns and social distancing, my horizon like that of many, has contracted from the world stage to the front door of my house. But this pause, this contraction of our world to the local and the immediate has also opened space for reflection. In this episode, I'm joined in conversation by Ben Walter, program coordinator at the Tungarung Land and Waters Council, a social entrepreneur and global adventurer who for nearly ten years managed Ceres Global, which is an enterprise under the umbrella of Ceres Community Environment Park in Melbourne which provided short educational travel programs in sustainability and international development. Ben and I collaborated in leading environment and sustainability-themed study tours to China, South Korea and India, including credit-bearing programs for students of mine at La Trobe University. Each in their own ways, these countries face significant problems stemming from environmental degradation and rapid economic development. The study tour programs that Ben and I developed were all about engaging with representatives from academia, the NGO sector, business and social enterprise, and activist groups, as well as learning from the direct experience of immersion in the landscapes and cultures of each of these countries. In this discussion, Ben and I reflect on our collaboration together with Series Global, exploring issues from the educational value of international travel, cross-cultural interaction and people-to-people engagement, and global citizenship versus localization in an era of COVID and climate change. So finish off that espresso, buckle up and lock in your tray tables. It's time for takeoff in my conversation with Ben Walter.: The
1: Edge Dwellers Cafe.
0: Ben Walter, welcome to the Edge Dwellers Cafe.
1: Thanks, Ben. Good to see you. How's things?
0: Yeah, good, mate. Lockdown notwithstanding, going okay at the moment. The shutdown of international travel over the last year and a half has given us pause to think about our old overseas adventures. So you and I have quite a history of of overseas travel and taking tour groups of people to places in Asia on really interesting trips. So yeah, COVID's given us, you know, it's prevented overseas travel and it gives us a chance now to pause and reflect on where we've been on this journey of international engagement. So I'm really pumped about this talk.
1: Awesome, yeah, great, um, great intro. I think we could have a a massive rave about all the things that we've been involved in. It's been, um, we've had some epic tips and epic years and how phenomenal has the last 18 months been, been intense, apparently we're, I heard somewhere along the way a stat that we're at nine early 1970s travel patterns globally. So we've we've cut it right back to the same same amount of travel they were doing in the early 70s. Gotta be great for the earth, but not many people doing much traveling.
0: You were formerly of Series Global, and you weren't part of the founding, but you came on not too long afterwards. But do you want to fill us in on series global how it started out what its mission was uh, and where it sits in the series community environment park umbrella
1: sure so series for those of you who don't know is a um awesome little community environment park in east brunswick been there since early 80s and, um, and a, a great hub of sustainability thinking education social enterprise um, and i think they get At its peak, pre-COVID was um, almost 500,000 people a year through the gates down on the Mary Creek. Um, So great, great hub of activity and um, Ceres Global developed from a number of relationships from members of the community, having built them over a number of years, particularly from Noel Blanco, one of the key founders of Ceres, who had a... um, A very strong and ongoing long relationship with India and a number of different villages and communities over there. he, he, He spent some time there in the 70s with his partner in Pal, a small rural tribal community in India, in Maharashtra. And following that time that he spent there in the 70s, he made a commitment to coming back regularly after that. And then that kind of influenced the development of Series Global, which is a commitment to a whole lot of international relationships, returning annually, sharing ideas, building rapport and um, sort of global friendship building, which is an awesome premise for a program, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and that mission is really based on uh, an yeah, ongoing reciprocal relationship, wasn't it, of building building up these relationships with communities and with organisations over time.
1: Yeah, and the, the, I came on board about 10 years ago. I spent 10 years at Ceres um, and with Series Global before the pandemic, and I'd inherited a few of the existing relationships with Timor, India, and Mapuru in Arnhem Land and Indonesia. And then um, over the 10 years that I was there, I introduced new uh, relationships and then fostered some of those old ones to build it up again. So it was a great feature of series where staff were able to come on board, members of the community, um, and then eventually students, which is where I came to meet you, Mr. Abib.
0: So your dad was in the the permaculture design course at series that I was taking part in. So I met him first, uh, and I remember we were having coffee at series, and he goes, "Oh, my son works here. You should meet him." And he sent you a text, and you came out and. You know, we got talking and said, I like China. <laughs> I said, yeah, I like China too. And I said, do You want to go to China? <laughs> and nine months later, we were in China with a, a student group from Latrobe.
1: That was pretty much our old. That was the idea. And it was um lots of good ideas, a couple of passionate people with a bright idea, a bit of um, wild ambition, and then off you go. So there's it was Initially, it was series community. Uh, The very early days of series global was just series staff. So it was an opportunity to get series staff on these friendship building activities. And it kind of built up into a bit of a a service that series could provide to the immediate community. And it was a, a pay for service kind of operation, low, low budget. Bit rough and tumble but you know no it wasn't high end by any means but it was purely for the the social impact and the community development aspect and then people pay their way for a contribution to the community cost of travel and so on and then having developed some trips with you and then further into the Latrobe and Swinburne university environments we really were got kind of it humming there for a while we were running I think about 15 10 to 15 trips a year over 200 people a year. Uh, that was 2018 and 2019, which is amazing. Um, like a really epic program and a lot of fun as well. So, some, yeah, trying to capture the learnings and the experience of that 10 years is so diverse. We, we travelled overall, we travelled to those core places that we returned each year, but also went over to Cuba and Japan and Greece and Sri Lanka, and so we pushed, and pushed it out and then and then we were matching a lot of the experience to a lot of the curriculum at the universities. So, it was, yeah, they were wild times. Amazing.
0: Yeah, so when I came on board, I, I wanted to do a, a study tour to China where we explored uh, environment and sustainability related issues, and it was a really broad brief. It was like anything to do with environment sustainability, let's check it out. And let's go to a place where environment or environmental degradation is really full on, where the environmental challenges are a really big part of people's day-to-day life, and where the sort of the economic and the governance challenges uh, are really significant, but in different ways to what we experience here in Australia and China was exactly that. So obviously you had plenty of experience in China. You'd lived in China previously. I'd been to China many times, sort of lived and worked in China for a while as well. Uh, so we both had a real affinity with this place, and yeah, so 2015 was the the first year that we did this trip. So, what were your thoughts as as we're developing this trip to China? It's the first serious trip there, if I'm not mistaken. It was. Yeah. What were your thoughts as we were preparing this mission? Uh,
1: I was. China's a funny one, think mean, I think um, because it's such a there's very limited English speakers in China, and it's um it's quite a contrast to our own community obviously but it's um but having been there a few times I was confident and comfortable and with my pretty rough mandarin knew that I was able to get us around so I was, I was familiar and confident enough to make it a pretty wild trip and it was um it was just about making the right connections to be able to explore those issues and have some really solid content in the journey as well as an amazing adventure. So the the travelling itself is incredible. I mean, we've all... Those of us who've, tra- who've had the luxury of being able to travel internationally know that when you're out there and you've got your wings out, your eyes and ears and your heart open, you're, um, it's quite an amazing space to be in. And to then have it facilitated with a group from the university and from series with some experts giving some um, key learnings and advice throughout and exploring some pretty big global issues. The whole thing together is an amazing experience. And when it's done well, you have um, some pretty wild impact on the participants particularly. So the the trips can vary whether they're having an impact on the communities that we visit or or the participants themselves. And all of it is under the umbrella of the sustainability and climate change discussion, knowing full well that we're ripping a fairly large carbon footprint In the process. So, in terms of justifying the carbon footprint, having been through it, I'm sort of no issues there. I know that the the impact of the journey on the students as well as on the community far outweighs the carbon burnt. But in terms of taking the opportunity and it having its greatest impact on the earth and for communities and individuals. You got you got to do it right. You can't. It's it is not. It's not a Kentucky tour. <laughs> so getting to China and being able to create the contacts and the and getting the content right to make it that impact and that amazing journey was always going to be challenging. But I reckon we did it. I think there were a few that were there were a few lost in translation moments, and there were a few exactly what are we doing here moments. But there were also some really amazing communities that we met, some people, individuals, um, organizations and government So, yeah, I think it was good What, what were your reflections on the two thousand and fifteen trip and the subsequent two or three china trips that we did?
0: I thought the first one was the first one was the best one because it was the first one. And we had a really great group of students, many of whom I still remain friends with and are in contact with now as they've gone into their professional lives. Uh, so it was a great group. Uh, it was my first time being able to facilitate or you know, be part of leading a tour like that. So it was personally personally, really challenging for me to, to bite off this new challenge. That community outside of Shanghai that we visited that group of sort of middle-class families from Shanghai who decided to group invest in in that hillside property. What was it, an old farm that had gone into disuse because it was on marginal land. So they wanted a place where they could grow their own organic food and have a place for their kids to play outside of the concrete jungle of Shanghai and have access to fresh food that hadn't been contaminated. Uh, that That was really inspiring. So why don't more people do that here in Australia?
1: That trip that we did to Hangzhou was amazing. That was um, one of the highlights of the series global trip, the 10 years that I can remember. It was awesome. We had this incredible community committed to permaculture and they were quite aware that they were doing something really radical for China. This, this was not, not the done thing in China. And we'd come with some permaculture knowledge they knew about you and about Ed and about what had what had already our involvement with permaculture, and they were so welcoming and made dumplings together and hung out. They had that they had a huge gathering um, shelter and then just a whole lot of permaculture books laid out. They were they were massive fans, and to to be able to connect on a set of values without having met them before. Um, and to, for us to swan in in a, a big group of twenty of us, and then them to put us to work, get us involved, welcome us, eat with us, was really cool. It was it was about building really deep connection and rapport just based on your values across cultures, which was a really phenomenal thing. Usually, when you meet a new group or you come into a, a different situation, you need to take some time to. Explain who you are, where you're from and what you're about. But this was like straight on, straight away. So there were a few, there were a few golden moments in that whole over the whole period where you can just see it just gel really well.
0: That common language around permaculture, the design principles and the commitment to the earth and the permaculture ethics. And I found that in other contexts as well. When you meet people that share those you know share the permaculture ethics and and using the design system whatever your linguistic or cultural differences you've got something in common that you can work off
1: there's something about that face-to-face connection though as well when you can um, especially in a group setting where you can bring two groups together like that and have an amazing um, engagement um, I think it's really important but the 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 hardcore diehard permies would say you shouldn't be travelling in the first place, which is fair enough on one level. But I don't know if you read the recent IPCC report just a couple of days ago. It ain't pretty. We're we're in strife. um, The report said it's definitely humans. Temperatures are going to keep rising. The weather's going to be more extreme. Arctic summers are going to have no ice. Guaranteed sea level rising. We're running out of time. All the, all the messages we've already heard, but basically we're fucked. We need a massive change. And I understand the, the Permi ways, and I know that it's, it's great to localise, downsize, but if we all end up in Castlemaine or bloody Mullumbimby with a, with a clear conscience, we didn't share the knowledge and we didn't get out there and I, know, I understand that eco-villages are, are forming, but we need to connect. I don't know if the option to just downsize and localise and keep it small is a real option. We've got to use the knowledge that those eco-villages and permies and vegans and earth builders and the, 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 the sustainable communities have got to influence the greater good. And the challenge is huge. There's still so many people throwing McDonald's packets out the window as they burn off. You know, it's like I don't know, long long way to go. But that when you do come face to face with like-minded communities and you connect and you exchange ideas and you share the knowledge and the, um, it's powerful. And I think some of the other trips we did with Series Global, we had you'd always have an expert or two, on particularly on the public trips. But whether it's a earth builder, sustainable architect, the, the Zumnia project in India had Paul Adams, who's a sustainable builder, had um, John Wallace from Swinburne, from the tradies team and the Ceres site team, travelling to share sustainable building knowledge. They used research and experience and um, technology from the Earth Institute in Auroville, and then called in Shavir from Put Your Hands Together in Mumbai. So you build this epic team. There was also um, Danny Wolf from Agari Farm was out there. So you have this awesome team of highly skilled and amazing people coming to share their knowledge on a a really hands-on example and get something done. There's a, a great impact in doing that in rural India where they're going to pick up the technology and replicate it rather than doing it on your own home in Castlemaine, which is also important. But if we're going to tackle this, we've got to do it well. You also get, uh, we had Django from the aquaponics team at Series in Timor connecting with World Fish and Egor Lemos on aquaponics and fisheries. Lincoln Kern from Practical Ecology came to uh, Chile with us and he's talking practical ecology with private landowners, and then the local government in Gorbia in Chile, which was awesome. And Don Butcher, who's the guru of the Yarra Valley watersheds, and an amazing guy, telling his story on the on the local road trip. So you, you get these experts, and you get their knowledge, and you put them, you get them on the move, out there in the world. Great impact on the group themselves, but also being able to apply some of their skills and some of their knowledge in the international setting. But then so there's a, there were those public trips, but then there was the university and the, the student trips, which were awesome. And the, the lecturers kind of became the experts. So they had we had Alex Davis and Ruth Gamble talking, melting Himalayas and Indian rivers while on a boat on the Ganges in Varanasi or something. So they're they're, they're out, they're in their element, they're using their knowledge, they're imparting their um, experience and their passion onto their students, which is, you know, you're going to get so much more out of that than you are in a lecture theatre. And then when you match them up in the field or in in country with other academics and experts, great things happen. Keir Strickland came with his archaeologist to Myanmar we're in Bagan when Bagan was heritage listed on the World Heritage Listing. What an amazing experience for archaeology students to be there. A huge experience and opportunity and having those experts with their students in, in the world at the time. We had you obviously reading the landscape and leading our environment sustainability students on, through China and Korea. And sharing your knowledge, uh, you remember standing in that rehabilitated river in Seoul and talking about sort of the you know what it used to be like and just looking at well, the Han
0: River going through the middle of Seoul. Yeah, yeah, and
1: it was just an amazing. It was it was like a, a series kind of rehabilitation, um, and it's just going right through the middle of a city. So yeah, it's
0: been an old horse racing track. Yeah, right. And before that, it was a hunting ground for the old E dynasty royal family.
1: Mm. So, so to have an international travel journey led by you who've got the knowledge, locals with the connections and the story, and then students learning from it, as well as the communities who are visiting, you can do great things. So we had quite a few Latrobe Education students from Bendigo, and they were big groups. They were 25 to 30 students, um, a couple of them. And they were into the Mumbai slums teaching children of sex workers in the red light district. A huge experience to be there in the first place, let alone to be engaging with them as teachers. And then heading out to pal and remote tribal class environments where they're teaching again. So the experience that they're getting from that was absolutely amazing. That was Annie Townsend's and then there was the IT for social impact. I think they did nine trips to Pal. IT students are so risk averse. Uh, and then suddenly they're wiring up a remote rural Indian village and introducing these technologies, drones to do aerial mapping of deforestation or library box to have intranets It's not, you're not going to get that in Hawthorne at Swinburne and you're not going to get that education experience in Bendigo. So they were really amazing journeys, I reckon.
0: So like reflecting on permaculture thinking, one of the principles is value the edge, edges as productive spaces where you've got two different systems coming together and there's lots of interface and and exchange. And. Uh, So it's a much more productive space than just in a system alone. And so that's what you get when you have cultures coming into contact. This interpretation of EDGE is one of the key themes of this podcast that I'm really interested in. And it's part of what you do as an international relations practitioner is what are the interactions that are happening across these boundaries between different peoples and societies, uh, governments and cultures, et cetera. And we were on the leading edge of that on these trips in terms of people-to-people interaction.
1: Yeah, no, the, the, it's an amazing, um, it's an amazing frontline the when the two communities and the two cultures come together. And then once you bridge it and once you merge the edges and you build rapport, you build that deeper connection and that understanding, then great things happen. Yeah, I think logistically, being able to foster that relationship and those friendships further over time, it does become challenging. There's obviously the tyranny of distance and there's a whole lot associated with maintaining those relationships. But when you can, and when you can truly exchange ideas and knowledge and share the way forward, it's got to be. It's got to be the answer to a lot of our challenges. I mean, localizing and isolating is one part of it, but connecting and sharing and engaging together is another one. And we need to use the existing organizational structures that are around us, uh, whether it's philanthropic, local council, government. We've built a really good relationship with Moreland Council and Chris Adams from Friends of Oleyu collaborate, run a trip, and then a lot of the fundraising activities that Moreland Council were doing might complement particular project or you're just connecting a lot of people's work in a lot of areas to be able to increase the, the you know, greater than the sum of our parts sort of thing. Now, having a COVID and a complete stop to travel, we've been able to connect online, but you can really see the value in face-to-face personal contact. We, we can have webinars and meetings and connect over Zoom and Skype and Teams and whatever, but there's something missing and there is a whole depth to spending a week with, with a village and really, really going there with what where we're all up to. So I think it does need to come back. We could probably be more strategic and a bit clever about how we engage and where we engage. To, to seek that impact, calling in other groups, collaborating and co-designing particular projects. But I think, yeah, this 18 months so far has been great for reflection. It pressed pause. In a, in a way it was an amazing program that was reaching and reaching and reaching and didn't have a limit and COVID was the limit. COVID stopped everything and it gave we had commitments to relationships in 10 countries you know so it was always we'll be back next year and we'll bring the environment and sociology students or we'll bring some medical students so so there was a, there was a an ongoing deep connection and a commitment but now that's stopped we're able to take stock see what worked and what didn't and not sure what will happen next but hopefully in some or whatever capacity the universities will pick up the relationships series may or may not hopefully will and others might be able to leverage some of that great work that was done over the 10 years
0: one of my concerns so just looking at a future where we probably won't be traveling as much because Mm of you know whatever ongoing COVID issues there are because of the climate the carbon footprint of international travel is that It's going to force everyone to retreat back and stay low. This is one of the traps of localization uh, that I see, even in the the permaculture agenda, is that you end up getting stuck in your little cocoon, in your little bubble, and you don't get the exposure to diversity that keeps your culture healthy. And it helps you to learn and to grow as as people and communities and societies. So that's a concern that we're not going to get that interaction as much as we did. Because a world in retreat and a world under stress while we're in retreat is potentially a dangerous world.
1: Yeah, I hear that. That's um it is a um a bit of a concern. But we've also got such rich and vibrant culture at home. Our indigenous mobs are amazing with their connection to land, to spirit, and so much to share. Diversity within our communities is vibrant. We've got a long way to go in even connecting across the river. Like, seriously, I've got more in common with some of the remote tribal Maharashtrian villages we meet than I do with the people who live in Baldwin who vote liberal, you know, like, and we've got got bridges to cross locally, which we need to do. We've got to get our, our own selves in order and then as a region we'll be able to connect with New Zealand, Pacific and Asia and if we can do it with a with the smallest footprint possible that's great but yeah you're right the world is going to need to retreat for a while but yeah we, we might just have to get really good at using our technology and our, our tools to to go beyond that i don't know i've i've i've, I've waxed and waned between a, a hopeful a, an optimistic and a pessimistic outlook and you've got to stay optimistic really otherwise we've got no chance <laughs> Edge Dwellers Cafe.
0: All right, I want to throw a few different ways of conceptualising the overseas study to us, particularly for uni students, and how you'd frame these trips in a way to interpret what students are getting out of them. So the first perspective I want to raise is global citizenship. And I'd throw this one up there because this is the way that universities and government and the corporate sector tend to frame the overseas study experience. So what does it mean to be a global citizen? from someone who's been doing this work and doing this engagement and worked with lots of university groups
1: you just get a sense of responsibility you have a you have an understanding and an insight and a, a network of friendships and experiences that change your change your perspective on what it is to be a human and what's going on out there in the world we were talking offline earlier about Beck Strading's, um webinar last night with Malcolm Turnbull and Kevin Rudd, which was a bloody hoot. It was good to see the two of them banging on about global politics. But there's another webinar, not nearly as good as this one, obviously. But it's um, the China, if you're listening, with Adam Bevan, and he talks about Kevin Rudd's early experiences living in China during the Tiananmen Square massacre, and Kevin Rudd comes on and talks about it as well. But it was. When you're out there in the world, you have an amazing lived or travelling experience, it affects you and you have a it'll play out in your later life as you form your global citizenship. So you, we are Ben Abib and Ben Walter and Bunder and Reservoir, little nobodies in the scheme of things. But when we've seen the world and you have a understanding of what's out there, it changes your perspective and it changes your behaviour and you you live your life differently as a global citizen than you would if you'd never left.
0: Yeah, I've found when I've been overseas and particularly when I've been overseas for an extended period, uh, like when I've lived uh, studying for a semester in South Korea back in 2002 or when I was teaching English in China uh, in 2004, and it, it gives you a window... Or it gives you a mirror back onto life back home and back onto Australian society, and you get to look at home from a new perspective or a different perspective that highlights things that you wouldn't see if you'd never left. Because you're all of a sudden you're sitting outside looking in.
1: Absolutely, you do it in your twenties too, in your formative years when you wide-eyed and going for it. you got to watch it, though, because you can go too far. I spent, I did six months studying in Beijing in 2001, which was fantastic. Then a couple of seasons in Goa in India in 2004 and 2006, tourists, you know, you're on the you're on the party circuit and having a great time. But then, and then 2008, a full year in Yunnan in China, and they were... Huge, huge periods in my life. Absolutely loved it. But people I'd met at the time and other people I'd just come across are still out there and they're still going. I still know a guy who's currently today riding his Enfield motorbike through the ladakhi Mountains into the Himalayas, you know. So the power of the the draw of the international dream keeps going. Could, I met people in the Anakville in Cambodia, a couple of German guys, and they're, they're making their own sausages and cooking pizza at their place down by the beach. I was like, how long have you guys been here? They said, well, we did 10 years in Goa in the 80s, 10 years in Copenhagen in Thailand in the 90s, and we've been here for 10 years. So we're too far gone. We're not going home. Are you going to watch it? No, it's a bunch it's of commentary on home, right? isn't it? Absolutely. Yo. And it's a commentary on what goes on when you when you leave home. When there's no one looking over here, your next door neighbor's not asking what you're doing and what you're doing with your life and how school and everything. When you're when you're living overseas, you're anonymous. You can find your identity. You can you can be free. You can do the things you want to do. It's amazing. A good time to do it in your twenties for sure. And if you were if you're talking about engagement and being. Being practical and having some impact while you're doing it and not just fluffing. Studying is a great thing to do, particularly when you can do it um, by distance and get off study while you're over there. That's awesome. Doing things like volunteer placements with AVI, Australian Volunteers International, great, great initiative that, and they resource you to be able to do it. But I think yeah, if you set yourself up to do you know, two or three months with an organization and teaching English or sharing your skills, if you've got some, you can do great things while still going for it and stepping out of your comfort zone in your home environment.
0: The next perspective to think this through with is the rite of passage, and this is particularly applies for 18 to 25-year-olds, the uni student age.
1: What is the rite of passage?
0: Yeah, well, that's a good question because one of the critiques of Western industrial society now is that we don't have... Rite of passage experiences, or like initiation in traditional cultures, where you you start out as a, a neophyte or, a, or essentially a child, and you go through something that's difficult and different. And in adapting to that, you come out on the other side an adult with skills to be an adult and function as a mature person.
1: Sure, I get I understand that the experience of landing in the Indian slums and being shocked to the hell about what the hell is happening around you and then coming through it and being able to reflect is an amazing growth journey. And if you can do it in a safe and facilitated fashion, all the better. And you would not necessarily take that journey on your own. You might not call it in and design the journey yourself. You might not take the initiative to make that happen. But if the opportunity arises and you can step through that, and you know you're going to be all right, and so you are putting yourself out of your comfort zone, but taking you to yourself to a place that you wouldn't otherwise have gone, physically and travelling, but also mentally and understanding the plight of other people of the earth and issues and challenges of different communities, that's a huge rite of passage and a huge accomplishment when you do it, and you're better for it. You're confident and able to achieve greater things.
0: And when things go wrong as well, so the, the unplanned things that you just have to deal with because you've got no choice. <laughs> and so you, i found for me when things have gone wrong out in the road, I react to them with a greater calm than I would at home because what else are you going to do?
1: Absolutely. Uh, you I-
0: know, there, there was that time when, when we were in China and I you had to accompany me to a, a hospital in Chongqing, which was a very unpleasant experience, and we had no fucking idea what was going on you know, getting through that, that was a really difficult and troubling experience for me, but it gave me really, real insight into, you know, what's good about the health system in Australia and how I reacted under pressure uh, in the moment when that stuff was going down. In some moments, well, in other moments, you know, that pushed me right to the edge.
1: Absolutely. And what was difficult and challenging for you was equally challenging for me, but um, also amazing that we got through that. (laughs) Classic. With my, I know, but what a... was most shocking in Chinese. And then we did it. And then it it was totally cool. It was totally fine that you could ditch the group. We were all good. Everyone was all right. And, you know, if you can get through that, you can get through anything, really. There's been some wild personal growth experiences. I've surprised myself so many times.
0: Another perspective, the pilgrimage particularly for places that you keep going back to or have kept going back to, could you describe any of them as a pilgrimage? And it doesn't have to be like a religious thing. Like for me, going back to South Korea and going to watch K-League football matches
1: mm-hmm.
0: is a pilgrimage of sorts for me because football is, was the vehicle through which I really connected with Korea back in 2002 because that's when the FIFA World Cup was on, was part of South Korea's big run to the semi-finals. And it was just an extraordinary time to be in South Korea and to be immersed in the the fervor of this tournament and to see South Korean nationalism and national pride come out in a really positive way. Uh, So every time I go back to Korea now and go watch a K-League football game, I'm reconnecting with that amazing experience from the first time that I went to Korea. Have you got anything like that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's pilgrimage, isn't it? That's um what pilgrimage can be whatever you make of it. And there are there are even just certain cafes or bars that you revisit just as a as an ode to a great memory of a previous time traveled there or going there specifically to be part of that space again. Um is great. I think the Himalayas have had a huge impact on me. I've travelled right up to Uttarkashi and Uttaranchal in India or Yunnan in China and then right up over the top through Tibet and Lhasa. And the Himalayas are are certainly a a pilgrimage place and I'll do whatever I can to get there (laughs) for the rest of my life. I love it. The Ganges in India, you can get to Varanasi and you can get to the Ganges. It's just epic. And yeah, those are those are those are pilgrimage places. There are other villages and communities that you do consider pilgrimages when you head back there, but you're there for the people as well. So that I, I feel like a pilgrimage is to a place and you're going back to a certain place in the world, but yeah, you also head back to villages and communities to reconnect and see those people again going back to Samoa and visit Joe, the chief of the Potassi village, and I'd feel like I was there going to see Joe as much as the village, so as the spot, the place. But, yeah, if you, could, I suppose you can have a pilgrimage back to see people, pilgrimage home to see family and so on.
0: What about thinking of an overseas travel as, and this is an analogy, thinking of it as like a shamanic journey experience where you're, Like in that kind of experience, you're journeying to an alternative reality in order to learn things about yourself and your existence that you can bring back to your ordinary reality uh, in order to heal and in order to live well. Now, it is an analogy because obviously you're not travelling to other dimensions uh, through a journey experience or a a mystical experience when you're travelling overseas. But there's kind of an analogy to that where you're going to somewhere that's very different. From your ordinary experience to learn and to bring something back that's of benefit when you come home.
1: Yeah, I think that um, if you if you're going for the the greatest impact and the, the the deepest shamanic journey you can you can take, I'd say removing everything that's familiar to you from the scenario is one of the keys. So that might even be who you're traveling with. So when you get your confidence up and um, you're feeling safe and ready to go, it might be travelling on your own, even just like a few hours or a day or a couple of days of solo travel when it's you on a rickety old train through India um, to a a village that you get out and you've got no idea where you are. You've got none of your um, safeties and your familiar identity mirrors that you would have normally had so you are out there I mean even if you're traveling with a partner or a friend or a group you've got those people to fall back on and say hey are you catching this and you reinforce your own identity in doing that so yeah i'd say if you if that's the if that's the mission to go there and to push yourself to the greatest change then you can go alone head out there and yeah See see who you are when you are alone.
0: Further to that one, the last perspective I want to run by you is this idea that comes from the education literature of the disorienting dilemma, which comes from a a guy called Meziro in the United States, I think. And so the idea behind the disorienting dilemma is that to learn something, you've got to be in a situation where you don't know, where you're unsure, and where you have to find a way out, either in reality or mentally and that's the key to deep learning is to be in a situation where you're disoriented and have to figure figure out your way out
1: yeah I can I can relate to that I'd love to learn more about about that theory I'll, I'll chase it up but um, I'm, I'm getting that in my new job in indigenous affairs at the moment you put yourself in a new and challenging situation that and you're Realising things that you didn't see before and you're faced with challenges that, you know, you thought you might have had a grasp on and then you're realising you don't, it forces your learning, it yeah? forces your thinking and you're adjusting your perspective to to really work out what's going on. And I think you do you definitely do that when you're travelling. You're constantly pushing yourself and adjusting your perspective and Yeah, I'm interested. I'll chase that down. I want to find out more about that.
0: A lot of the places that we've been to on serious trips and and you've been to on trips without me, obviously, are you going to places that are at very different levels of development to what we're used to here in Australia? And there's a power dynamic. There's post-colonial societies. uh, There's racial dimensions and ethnic dimensions going on. How do you navigate those power dynamics when you've got a group there?
1: Uh, interesting question. I think um I think to a degree. I mean, I'm a middle class white male from Australia traveling the world with usually a large amount of money in my pocket, paying our way and influencing local communities. You know, so there's there's a whole lot of power dynamic, and most of the people we visit won't ever have the chance to travel internationally. You know, there's there's a whole lot of factors in that. You, sh- you can certainly feel it and own it and recognise your whiteness and your, your your privilege, but then I think to really get to the friendship building and the uh, impact and the sharing of ideas and and technologies or whatever it is that you're doing on a particular trip, you got to get past it. And when you get to the human to human interaction with a stranger of just check us out, here we are in the world, what have you got, let's go for it. Individually then as a group and you celebrate the fascination with each other, you know, when you're all standing there gawking at each other going, oh, wow, check you out. There is an equality um, in that engagement once you, you can pursue if you follow it. So there's a there's just a, there's a, an amazing humanness in the moment.
0: All right, the last thing I want to ask you about is integrating these experiences when you get home. As I've noticed whenever I get back from overseas, I have a reverse culture shock coming back. And you go through so much when you're overseas on the road, especially when you're with a group of people uh, on these kinds of study tours. So much happens in a day. And it's such an intense interpersonal experience while you're on the road with the, with the group that you're with, with the, the local people that you're interacting with, the physical difficulties of of just the logistics of being on the road. It's such an intense experience. And then you get home and it's like let down and you've got all of these new experiences and new things that you've learned to integrate. What's your process for when you touch down?
1: Well, it's a tough one. I do, I remember it um, most vividly the earliest trips that I did. I think when I, 1998, I went and protested at Jambaluka in against the uranium mine, the range of uranium mine, Northern Territory, and I'd been camping out on country for three months, and when I came home, even coming inside was intense. I was like, I want to set up a tent in the backyard. <laughs> I can't even be in a house. you know. So that was the most extreme re-entry, so it's tough. But then once you get over the initial shock, you're trying to... Imp- you know, integrate your learnings and really capitalise on the relationships you've formed, and bringing it all back home. I think you um, you tend to gravitate towards like-minded people. You share your, you share your stories, that you know, there's only so many stories people want to listen to as well. But then you do seek out the people who really get it and the people who want to learn from it. So you can have those massive raves at the pub, or you know, you can have those really good meetings and professional planning engagements or set up projects or find organisations that are doing great things as well and connect with them. So you wouldn't expect to just come back and carry on life as usual. Well, you could, but, you know, there's a it can be a bit lost in that. But um, the other option is you don't come home, you know. You could just keep going.
0: Series Global, because it's been going for a long time and so many people have been through these programmes, there's this community of people here now and that are spread around the world as well of part of this uh, this serious global community that are connected either through their direct experiences together in a group or because they've been through these programs and have that in common as a, as a touchstone. So I know you had a few uh, a few shows through the years at series bringing people together who'd been through various different series global programs and they were always really great events to connect with people and you had that common language of that common experience.
1: Yeah, they, they're all always awesome events. Sometimes people who hadn't even been on the same trip as each other can connect just on you know having been on a series trip. But then often you know repeat travellers as well that continue to come back looking for that that group and that travel experience was awesome. But I reckon there's a there's a huge opportunity to travel and reconnect to international students who've who've studied for know two three or four years in Melbourne and then gone home they have this um they have this wild experience that they've had in in their university life and I imagine them going back to China or India or Korea or Japan that must be quite a full-on experience for them because they cannot connect necessarily with that experience with their own friendship groups So a few times We were able to track down alumni from La Trobe and from Swinburne and meet them. And, you know, they're so excited to be able to see a a bunch of Australian university students out in the world. And they become amazing ambassadors and facilitators. We had there's a Japanese student who was in and she facilitated a sustainable building in Japan trip with Katie J. Amazing journey they had, and her connection. She'd been on the Timor trip with us as Mariko. Mariko had been on the trip in Timor with us, and spent time living in Melbourne. So had an an automatic affinity to the group and um, a great facilitator and host. And yeah, quite a few people. So I think there's a huge opportunity in reconnecting with those people, so that they can leverage their experience and their learnings, and um, just sort of reignite them.
0: Right, last question from me. From your perspective, what does it mean to be an edge dweller?
1: Oh, what a question. It's um, Actually, I was talking about this to my brother today. We were reflecting on when I was grade three and four and I was always the last one on the shelter shed to get picked for footy and cricket. <laughs> it's the edge dweller. But you're not quite in the team. You're not an automatic fucking full forward, are you? And there's edge dwelling in primary school. There's edge dwelling because you're doing things a bit differently, travelling and almost not coming back is probably edge dwelling. But doing things that others aren't doing, I suppose, pushing it out there and just going for it, thinking differently, being differently, dragging along people with you that wouldn't have otherwise done it differently. That's part of edge dwelling, I reckon.
0: Yeah, and as an edge dweller, how are you interpreting this this historic moment that collectively we're in right now, like 2021, the world's being pulled in all kinds of wild
1: directions.
0: What's your big meta perspective on this moment?
1: I'm loving it. I really love it. I love it. We're not obliged to be social. I love it that I can stay home all day and I could be, I've got tracky dacks that I've <laughs> worn holes in. In the last 18 months, I've got three pairs on rotation. They're great. I'm finding it deeply restful, nurturing, landing, grounding. I've watched seasons in the garden and I haven't travelled for 18 months. So for me, it's been a really welcome change and new way of being. I mean, I'm still lucky enough to have a job, so I'm working from home. I'm still inspired and challenged and productive but yeah I'm I'm loving the downtime I'm loving the um, the rest it wears thin as well I'm sure it does you does your head in at times but I'm loving that it's unusual and it's reflecting all of our other challenges that video that I shared with you the other day of you and I in the early lockdown I rewatched that it was from March last year It's pretty classic. As soon as lockdown hit, I was like, right, that's it, Josephine. Get in the car, drag the combi and the caravan to Abundance Farm, which was extreme. It was extreme. We were hunkering down. I was like, this is it, babe. (laughs) See what happens next. What's going to be next that rocks us, anything like that? We had world wars and... Now um, we've had virus and there's going to be climate change. That's going, to, that's going to absolutely ruin us next.
0: Yeah, well, it's a, a moment of cleansing, I think, is what you've touched on there.
1: Yeah. Uh, how about you? Yeah. How have you gone with it? It's
0: It's been all of the things you've described. Like I really like being at home and not being in contact with humans. Like you, I've been really lucky to still be working, but that work's also been pretty high pressure because, you know, being a, a lecturer and responsible for guiding hundreds of students through their learning journey. And a lot of them are really struggling through this moment and they've got all their, you know, external challenges going on that are making it really difficult. So, it's yeah, it's been being pulled in different directions, some of it good, some of it really challenging, and just uh, grappling with a lot of uncertainty about what's coming next because we don't know that all of the certainties that we thought we had in this world in 2019 are gone. And whatever comes after COVID is not going to be the same. We've got climate change to deal with. Our politics is different. How we relate to each other is different. How we relate to work and how we ensure our means of survival and subsistence. Like these are big, big changes. And, uh, yes, I've just been grappling with the uncertainty of that just trying to stay centred in the moment because I can feel really overwhelmed by the enormity of what's ahead
1: Don't worry, Ben, we're going to be okay. (laughs) I think given the the training we've had in all the experiences we've had in life and learning and stepping up and stepping through, we're going to be okay. Whatever happens next, we'll we'll handle it and we'll continue to shine and have a bloody great time while we're at it.
0: Well, that's the rite of passage, isn't it? It's like we're all going through this big societal rite of passage that we all have to grow up as a as a culture and come out the other side as something different
1: as a planet we well, do you know it
0: ben walter thanks for joining us on the edge dwellers cafe
1: no worries Habib. you love your work <laughs> the
0: edge dwellers cafe what a hoot that was my conversation with ben walter so much to dissect in this chat about the edge between countries and cultures as a productive space and what it means to cross those edges and come back transformed love to hear from fellow edge dwellers about your experiences of overseas travel as a disorienting educational experience or as a pilgrimage or a rite of passage and what do you think international travel is going to look like in a post-pandemic world looking forward to hearing your thoughts on these questions hit me up through the social medias Check out the links in the show notes for where you can find Ben Walter and also for the things that I've published documenting my collaborations with Ben and Series Global. I look back on those collaborations as some of the most rewarding experiences of my career. If you like what you hear on the Edge Dwellers Cafe and you want to support the podcast, please click on the like and subscribe buttons on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also support the podcast financially by subscribing as an Edge Dwellers Cafe member through Patreon. Thanks for joining me on today's fantastic voyage. Till next time, this is Ben Habib sending you a big goodbye hug from the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Much love.